We're back, and we're going to go right to Washington, D.C. and talk to our correspondent, Bob Ney, about all things D.C. Bob, happy holidays. Welcome to the show. Yes, happy holidays, Kevin, to you and the station and all the listeners. So let's go to the United Nations. Uh, The Security Council of the United Nations delayed for a third time this week a vote on a resolution calling for a suspension in fighting and encouraging more humanitarian aid to the folks in the Gaza Strip. President Biden says the U.S. is uh, as our position is still unresolved. There's, that's very controversial. Take us through that, if you would. Right. Um, now, it's been three times this has been delayed, and it is entirely the United States that's delaying it. And what's going to happen is that uh, as we speak, the Biden administration will back a what will be called a diluted version. It'll be watered down from what they originally had. Um, the last delay was yesterday, so it, it'll be approved today. But nations wanted a stronger text. Now, the latest draft removes calls for urgent and sustainable cessation of hostilities. That's what it's calling for. So that'll come out. And then the latest draft that they'll present today will call for urgent steps to immediately allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access. So basically, ceasefire, you know, some type of, of stopping of the actions going on in Gaza is going to be taken out. And so the United States will support it. Now, the... Biden administration was trying to walk between fine lines here. I think the worst part to this is the fact that the United States was, you know, the sole reason for three days of delay. Now, Netanyahu and Israel might look at that differently, but for uh, the United States, and in particular for President Biden, uh, his base is going wild over this. So, for what it's worth, there's a difference between supporting public policy, of course, and doing what he feels is the right thing. But there's also, you know, what the president's base feels. And a lot of young people are, you know, upset with the the entire process. Bob, yeah, I, I want to go back to the, the young people. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a, there are entire generations of, of people in this country who voters in this country who don't understand the history of the creation of the of the state of Israel uh, and and that and that that is really upending this whole issue and seemingly dividing the democratic party between those who understand why Israel was created uh, in response to the holocaust uh, and other factors and and, and those who uh, just see 20,000 uh, dead Palestinians in Gaza as a result of a bombing war. Right. Uh, the, I mean, the history goes back to 1917 Balfour Agreement. I mean, we could spend literally a couple of hours on your show to discuss that whole history. And we can go back further, of course, in people's minds to, you know, uh, the Old Testament of the Bible uh, but the fact remains, uh, Israel then in 1948, uh, basically, or 47, became a, um, a nation state. And prior to that, it was called Palestine. But there's a debate when it was, when was it, who had the rights to it, et cetera. The, the bottom line is there was a 
situation called NABCA, which uh, a lot of Palestinians, tens of thousands, were forced off of property they lived in, and then they moved, and then the Arabs attacked Israel. So, yes, there's this whole history of attacks and uh, deals and potential deals, and you know, Jimmy Carter brokered um, brokered a deal. Iksat Rabin was assassinated. Uh, over that by an Israeli. Uh, so this history just goes on and on and on. Now, with the young people, uh, they have, I think it's honestly, Kevin, the, you know, the electronic TikTok, WhatsApp, uh, Instagram, and this has just caught fire. I've been trying to watch for news on Israel and Hamas and the Palestinians, and there is, there's just a ton of traffic that is coming on these electronic, you know, mediums. And um, so a lot of young people are picking it up. Those same young people are basically Biden's base. So, yes, no one's particularly astute on the history of it with a lot of the young groups, but they know that they feel some kind of feeling towards the Palestinians and the fact of they're hearing about, you know, lack of food, lack of hospitals, you know, et cetera. So PR war... Uh, Israel has a problem worldwide right now, frankly. I mean, to think they don't, and I have friends who think they don't and have told me that, but to think they don't is just kind of brushing the issue aside. Yeah, I, the, the poli- I'm sh- just constantly surprised by the shifting politics here and how uh, Israel – I mean – Biden is sending his defense secretary and his secretary of uh, state to constantly pressure the Israelis to 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 back off on this bombing. And so right. far, they don't see how long can Israel resist our pressure uh, to to stop the bombing, given our funding of it. Well, I've seen a video where a long time ago when Barack Obama was president, because Netanyahu and Obama did not get along, the prime minister of Israel, a long time ago, uh, somebody had taped him, and they were talking about the United States, and he said he didn't care what the president thought. He had the support of the American people, and he didn't care about what the president was doing. So there's kind of you know that attitude. I think the United States, as long as Biden uh, is going along with what Netanyahu wants – uh, then there won't be a, a lot of deals from Netanyahu. If, in fact, Netanyahu thinks that the United States is going to basically start to not go against Israel, but start to reverse itself on this kind of blanket policy, then there would be private negotiations, I think, between Netanyahu and the Biden White House as to where it all went. Because they wouldn't want that during this whole war to spill out publicly you know, into the media. Although the country is in you know, large debate over it. The other thing that's going on, too, and I think we have to recognize this, there are many, many people, and I have seen clip after clip, and I personally know people who are coming out and saying, I'm Jewish, Bernie Sanders is one, I'm Jewish, uh, but there needs to be some consideration of the humanitarian side for the Palestinians. And, And that's being said over and over and over by a lot of people. I also want to point out, and I've been to Israel many, many times, uh, and I keep up with, you know, a lot of Israeli politics. Kevin, I did want to point out that, you know, Israel is not just a, a you know, monolithic one policy place. It's a democracy right. 
uh, thank goodness, in the Mideast, and it, it has debates. When this is all done, trust me, Netanyahu will be under a huge debate in Israel. It's a war right now, so he's going to get a break from that. When do you think that uh, debate happens in Israel? Well, we've had Israelis on this show who are anti-Netanyahu, um, yeah. and is, yeah, a reckoning is coming for him. When does that happen? Well, I uh, I have a lot of friends in an area called Baksu, uh, India, and there's a synagogue up there, and there's almost sometimes three to five hundred Israelis, Israeli citizens that are up there in India. And they have had, I would say, a great portion of them have been against Netanyahu. Now, a lot of them have left, though, to go back and provide service for the country because, you know, they, they're they doing that. They feel that they need to do that. But I would say that, you know, I don't know how long this is going to go on. Right now, the statistics of the people moved, you know, 80, 80-some percent of the population has been moved over there and what used to be a five mile wide 25 mile long strip is less now with still 2.5 million people so eventually uh you can only i I would think you can only go so far with this once the people are more compacted together in the southern region of gaza let's say that it goes on for you know a month or two because netanyahu will continue he said this publicly to you know route out hamas but I would say that within a couple of months, this is going to begin to start to fall into a debate. And there's still a push to get hostages back. The families became very angry that the idea of hostage negotiations was being lost. And there's still, you know, 90 some hostages or more that are over there. So I would say in a couple of months, this probably is going to rage into more of a debate in Israel. And lastly, Bob, uh, Donald Trump's uh, once uh, personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, uh, has filed for bankruptcy. What's the significance of that? Well, it's pretty significant. Rudy has Rudy Giuliani has lost um, the court case, the defamation case by the you know election workers, and the judge came back and said, you know, you're going to pay it now. This is immediate. So he really probably uh, you know went into this bankruptcy obviously to to not do that that doesn't mean though that people can't file in that bankruptcy i don't know how much money you know rudy giuliani has but um i i i kind of knew and i've said this on the radio shows i do in multiple states that if anybody was going to take a fall first it was going to be giuliani he he was making some huge missteps. You could almost see the writing on the wall. Uh, he had at one point in time a lucrative business. Supposedly he wasn't paid for his legal work by the Trump campaign or whoever was supposed to pay him. So it certainly looked like he was going to get hit. I honestly, Kevin, had no concept that it would be $148 million worth of yeah. a hit. You know? Okay. That's, All right. that's huge. Well, it's... Okay, well, the Trump saga will continue to play out. I wish we had more time to to talk about it. Bob, as always, uh, happy holidays. I won't uh, talk to you, you again this, this year, but um, thanks for joining. Oh, I, actually, I'll talk to you again next Friday. Okay. Yeah. Uh, happy holidays. Okay. Thank you for joining Thank us, you. and uh, be you well. Too. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint with Kevin Ellis and our guest, 
is the one and only Ann Wallace-Allen of Seven Days, who is joining us to talk about the upcoming legislative session. Ann, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kevin. So can we summarize what's coming up in the legislative session in the next, oh, I don't know, six or seven minutes? <laughs> oh, well, we can certainly give it a shot. Okay. Why don't you start? Okay. I think the big theme that I know for a fact that Scott administration wants everyone to be aware of is that um, the party's over and all of that, those billions of dollars that have been flowing into the state's coffers for the last couple of years, thanks to COVID, um, have been spent or committed. And this isn't going to be one of those sessions where everybody is scratching their heads and wondering what to do with this or that 40 million extra dollars. That's something that um, has already come up a lot in conversations about some of the big ideas that people have. You know, they all cost money. And of course, we've all heard about that possible 18% property tax increase, which I can't talk about because I don't really understand what's going to happen with that. But there's right. a lot of concern about money. And that's, 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 it hasn't been that way for a couple of years. And, and what, Anne, is um, on the wish list of the legislature itself? I mean, obviously, there's going to be a discussion about housing. Um, what, oh, what, else is, sure. what else are they talking about? Um, well, um, housing is, of course, still one of the top priorities, if not the top priority, although it's going to devolve into a very detailed discussion of small permitting changes this year. Um, but yes, even though we've thrown millions and millions at housing, that's still a major crisis that's affecting a lot of other aspects of our economic life and also just a, it's a become a complete human rights crisis for people who just can't afford to find anywhere to live. So yes, housing will be right up there. And now we have a new priority, and that is coping with what looks like our regular flooding problem. And um, at first blush, it looks like, you know, what can a bunch of state legislatures do about situations where nine inches of rain are falling all at once on certain parts of the state. But there are a lot of things that people are working on. And, um, excuse me, dam safety is going to come up in this session. That's uh, we've got more than a thousand dams in the state and they need to keep working the way they're supposed to, to mitigate some of the damage from flooding. There's also, um, talk of streamlining our state emergency management response abilities because they're kind of patchworked right now. And Vermont is different from a lot of states in that we don't have strong county governments to put it mildly. You know, a lot of stuff is done on the municipal level or the state level. And that, created some confusion and uh, difficulties when FEMA came in with their with their sort of rubber stamp cookie cutter way of handling pandemic aid. They didn't have the counties to rely on. So there's talk of making that, that relief process a little bit smoother. Um, there's actually four studies that have either come out or are about to come out that everybody's waiting for before they start uh, looking into tackling um, some of our regulatory problems and or situations that could be improved. So there's going to be there's a lot of people reading those studies right now, and um, I think that in the first week we're going to see some of those ideas coalesce. And then outside of flooding, there's also lots going on. Um, you know, paid family leave is still on the table. 
Um, House Speaker Jill Krowinski says that that's still one of her, that's on her wish list. She's going to keep advocating for it. But um, it's, it does, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that because, as I said, the federal pandemic money has dried up and, you know, our state general fund is actually going to have a drop this year for the first time in more than a decade. So, right. Um, what else is on the table? Um, well, there's going to be there's going to be this uh, major argument over the the uh, the governor wants to change Act 250 to make it more uh, to streamline it, and I suspect there'll be pushback by the legislature. Does that make sense? Uh, I suspect there will be pushback from some members of the legislature. There always has been, but uh, you know, last year the the housing bill that was passed and became Act 47. Uh, they were successful. It was a very, very big bill, and there was a huge coalition that stood behind it when it was introduced by Senator Kesha Ron Hinsdale at the beginning of the session. And it ended up sort of leaning on the municipalities to alter some of their zoning that was making it difficult for people to build. And those provisions passed, and among many other things. And so the municipalities feel this year that um, it's it's the state's turn to do something about the provisions in Act 250 that serve as disincentives for people to build housing, especially for them to build multifamily housing or housing developments. And something that's different, I think, this year is that um, I was talking to Representative Seth Bongards, who's from Manchester, and he has been—he was a, a very, very involved in that bill that became Act 47. And he says that this year. He's working with Representative Amy Sheldon from Middlebury, who has been a strong ally of opponents to changing Act 250, and they're working on some proposals together that might be palatable to those who were very, very reluctant to see anything about Act 250 change because they don't want the state's character to change. So um, it's a possibility that there will be ways to keep Act 250 Keep the spirit of Act 250 intact, which is to keep our open fields and our hillsides and our to keep Vermont looking like Vermont, but to adjust it to make it possible for more development to happen in downtown areas and in other places where the state has long had a policy of encouraging development. And yet, and this will this must be on your list. And and yet, that development that we want to push into downtown is. By de facto pushing it into floodplains, so yeah. so they're gonna have they're gonna have to deal with that as well. Well, yes, I mean that's the thing. I mean, but you know, uh, housing the housing sort of the, the housing policy making leaders are saying, okay, but we're not going to just throw out the idea of developing in the downtown areas because of flooding. We just have to build smart. I mean, a couple people point to the transit center in Montpelier, which, as we can see, is on on legs and didn't suffer any damage from flooding, of course, because the waters just flowed underneath it. Um, there's other ways to mitigate the risk, <clears throat> although there's going to have to be many, many conversations about creating floodplains or um, changing the way that we manage our rivers and our dams. The other problem is that a lot of people who were flooded were flooded by runoff, just by the completely 
unsupportable amounts of rain that fell in a very short distance of time, short amount of time. I mean, that was also a significant cause of flooding. And there's nothing that we can do about that. It, it came down from the hills. And we even saw that on Monday in Barrie and um, in other places where, um, you know, Barrie, they had streets closed. The main street was closed because uh, the water just ran off down from the hills. And there was Luckily, they didn't have anything like the kind of flooding they had last summer. But, um, yeah, those are really, really, really hard questions to answer. How to focus the where, – where and how to focus construction so it's not in just going to be damaged by flooding. So are we looking at a at a inevitable clash between a progressive liberal legislature and a Republican governor over all of these issues? Well, I think both sides would tell you that they're very open to working uh, with each other and compromising. But um, inevitably, I would say inevitable clash in the state house is a foregone conclusion, wouldn't you? I mean, there's always yeah. different priorities. Um, it's it. it I I felt that I I was listening in on the governor's news conference earlier this week, where he was sort of listing what had happened with the latest flooding damage and ostensibly the conversation was about flooding, but he did bring up a couple times. I think he was sending a message to the progressives that we just, we don't have money for new initiatives. And uh, when we, the reporters asked questions about uh, the session or about flooding mitigation measures, he was pretty clear in saying, uh, sure, we can do those things, but we're going to have to cut spending somewhere else in order to do them because we can't spend more money, which is, you know, something yeah. he was also, he's been saying for the last couple of years, even when we did have lots of money flying around. So, yeah, there will be those who want to spend more and who will argue that um, doing so will actually strengthen our state's economy, increase our state revenues and save us money in the long run, as well as improving people's quality of life and increasing equality because income equality appears to be a larger problem than it is, has been in the past here. Um, and, last, yeah. and, and lastly, Anne, um, a record number of people died in Vermont last year from drug overdoses. What's the discussion around that? Oh, that's another really, really hard one because um, there are different ways of looking at how to tackle this incredibly complicated problem. And also it's kind of a moving target because the drugs that people are uh, buying are changing too, but one of the strategies that uh, people are talking about is creating overdose prevention sites where people could be monitored. So when they're using these drugs, they can get the medical help they need immediately to prevent these deaths. And um, the governor is not a fan of that. He vetoed a bill even just to study the issue. But I think lawmakers are going to take a longer look at what's happened in other places where they have created these sites there's you know it's really really the statistics are really complicated because in in areas where they have set up places that make it easy for people to gain access to the drugs they need to wean off the illicit drugs the safer drugs um you know those become places where a lot more people go for obvious reasons to uh, yeah. to help them with their to manage their drug problems, and then they have a really high overdose rate. So um, that's going to take some very careful consideration. Okay, and Wallace Allen, as always, will be watching. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the program, and Wallace Allen from Seven Days. We'll see you down the road. Happy holidays. Thanks, thanks, Kevin. You too. Bye. We'll be right back. 
It's Vermont Viewpoint. We're going to come back and talk about holiday movies and TV right after this. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. And now for the highlight of the show, holiday movies and holiday TV shows. What should we be watching over the next few days? And to help us out, we've brought in the Vermont Viewpoint film and TV critic Keenan Ellis live in studio in California. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. The Family Stone, Charlie Brown's Christmas, Love Actually, Die Hard, Grinch Who Stole Christmas, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, and Klaus, uh, an animated show, among many others. I know Danny's at the soundboard, and he can plug in a couple of callers if we need to, 244-1777. What is your favorite Christmas TV or holiday movie? But, Kenan, what are you going to be watching? Well, I mean, for our family Christmas, we always watch one or two movies. The first movie is Love Actually, which I think is a movie that most people watch every Christmas with Hugh Grant doing his dance to the, I believe it's the Supreme. Um, And it's about as treacly and cozy a Christmas movie as you could want. This is the thing. What constitutes a Christmas movie? Yeah, I, well, as you said to me last night off air, Die Hard? You've got to be kidding me. Well, Die Hard takes place during Christmas. The whole movie is set up with jingle bells, with Christmas carols, and with Bruce Willis murdering German bodybuilders. Uh, you know, it like it has all of the signs of Christmas, and this is my thing, it's you know, if you're someone who's a little sick of It's a Wonderful Life and, you know, the heartwarming Christmas vibe, you know, throw in a little diehard and you're still technically in the Christmas mood. Okay, you've got a generational divide here, uh, dear listeners. You've got the young guy who wants to watch Love Actually and Die Hard, and then me, who he just uttered the sacrilege, which is if you're getting a little bored of It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the animated version, Miracle on 34th Street, uh, I, and I'm going to go back to those. I mean, they're classics, Stone Cold. I, I particularly love It's a Wonderful Life. It's Frank Capra is one of the great directors of all time still. Um, but, you know, it's been playing every year on Christmas for the past Thousand 70 years. years, you know, and if you're a little sick of George Bailey learning that, you know, he's lived a good life, which, listen, it gets me every time. And that movie is very dark. If you're, it's not, it's not love actually, you know, it's not where everything works out and everything's happy all the time. No, there's, there's a lot of dark that happens in its wonderful life. So if you haven't seen it in a while, it's not as happy as you remember. It's true. Nick throws him out of the bar, and uh, and Potter is the evil is the evil uh, financial overlord, among other things. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole sequence where the angel, you know, transports him to a reality where he doesn't exist, and everybody is worse off, and nobody recognizes him, and it's like. I remember watching it for the first time at eight years old, and it was 
terrifying. <laughs> and you go, no, 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 no. Like, you know, they're going to be fine at the end. Everyone sings and, you know, his kids love him and it's all great. And it's, you know, to George Bailey, the, the richest man in town. But there's a 20 minute sequence before that where it is every kid's worst nightmare. So that's like letting uh, your brother watch Jaws at too early an age. That was another parenting mistake. I'm not sure watching It's a Wonderful Life is just like watching Jaws. They're a little different. I watched Jaws recently because my girlfriend was away and she's too scared to watch it. And, uh, you know, they kill a dog in that movie. They kill uh, a kid in that movie. That Jaws is not a Christmas movie, and I don't suggest watching it. So I do suggest watching it every other day of the year. Okay, um, I have to ask – I have to – I have to ask you about, okay, Danny just said something in my ear. Captain, what'd you say, Danny? Catherine Moortown? Oh, know. Catherine in Moortown. We have a caller. Catherine in Moortown. Uh, please, welcome to the show. Aren't you, su- aren't you surprised people listen to you? <laughs> no, I'm not surprised, especially you, my favorite <laughs> farmer caller. No, home alone, by and far. Ah, okay. Let's let's ask Keenan about that right now. Macaulay Culkin, Home Alone. Yeah, uh, written and directed by the great John Hughes of The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller fame. I mean, you're you're absolutely right, Catherine. Home Alone is a great Christmas movie. Another one of those Christmas movies that has a little undercurrent of darkness, where you know Macaulay Culkin gets left home alone by his parents over Christmas. And while it's really fun, if you think about it for a couple seconds, it's, you know, horribly traumatizing for that kid. And uh, and it's a very violent movie where all of he booby traps his whole house and violently takes down uh, two robbers, one played by the great Joe Pesci from Goodfellas fame. Um, and it, it's very funny. He had a on on the set on the creation of the movie um joe pesci wasn't allowed to swear um and if you've seen goodfellas joe pesci says the f word about 200 times and that's because he says it normally in life that much and so they had a swear jar and he would have to put money in the swear jar every time he swore around macaulay culkin and so if you watch the movie, you can actually see him struggling not to swear the whole movie. Every time he gets bonked on the head, he's trying to swear, but he's not allowed to. And so he's like, he's just kind of reduced to, uh, um, you know, <laughs> just just grumbling inaudibly. It's very funny. Well, Catherine, thanks for that suggestion. Okay. Um I want to talk about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We have to do this. This is an animated uh, film. It's narrated by the great Burl Ives. And talk about dark. This is Rudolph because of his ugly nose getting cast out from the from the tribe and rejected. And uh, he goes off and has to face the abominable snowman with Herbie the Dentist Elf. And uh, I can't remember the name of the lovely... Uh, uh, lady friend of Rudolph's, but uh, it's terrifying. It was terrifying when I was a child. It's terrifying still. I, I, it's amazing all these Christmas movies. We remember them as these heartwarming 
moments, but it's a good lesson in the most heartwarming stories have to come from someplace dark. You know, you can't be, you can't have victory without defeat first. And Rudolph is well known for being terrifying. The thing I remember most is just Herbie the dentist going, I want to be a dentist. And we would say that over and over and over again uh, around the house growing up. It's it's one of uh, the one of the moments that's that's the hardest for me as a parent is when Rudolph's father, uh, because of the nose that that won't turn off, uh, he casts him out. He throws him out of the house. It's just a terrible moment. He, he's not proud of his own son. Yeah, it's kind of like what you did to me when I couldn't shoot a jumper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, another. Another favorite of mine, uh, the Family Stone. Yeah. All-star cast, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, Diane Keaton. Tell us what that's about. Well, it's our, it's kind of our family Christmas movie. It's, it's a classic, you know, everyone comes home for Christmas, and the favorite child brings home a, 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 a fiancé who nobody likes. And um, and it's a movie about this crazy family all trying to get this woman out <laughs> of the family before she gets married in. And um, and it's, you know, hijinks ensue. It's very heartwarming and finally very accepting towards this woman. Um, but if you have a crazy family and have ever had a kid or been a kid who brings a significant other home for Christmas, you will recognize the trauma and terror of that moment. But it's also very heartwarming in the end. You know, I keep describing these Christmases really dark. But they're, you know, they all have the Christmas ending where they light the Christmas tree and everyone falls silent because it's beautiful. And, um, yeah, and it's, it's a great movie. It's a great, great movie. We've watched it a thousand times because we have our own big family that's very um, intimidating to newcomers. And uh, when everything just descends into, you know, shenanigans and chaos, we, we go, yeah, that's, that's us. That's us. Uh, it, it, is, it is on the list of Esquire magazine's 60 greatest holiday movies. I would point out for Catherine's benefit that Home Alone is number five with uh, It's a Wonderful Life being number one. Okay. We are going to take a call uh this is high-risk radio here because we're bringing on the one and only Rusty Deweese. Rusty, welcome to the show. Kevin and Keenan, how you doing? We're, we're good. Good, Rusty. We're good. I, have, I like your show. I like this film critic part. I have just four comments. And then uh, number one, Rudolph, I, uh, all the things you said, I agree, the darkness. But a good lesson for people. When is Rudolph finally accepted when they want something from him? I think that's an interesting uh, thing to think about in life, even in love. You know, who do you love? Someone who can give you something, whatever it is. So that's interesting. Die Hard, interesting, because, yeah, they're shooting people, but this guy's doing all this to to get the wife back. It's I think it's really a, a, a relationship movie movie in the, in the end you know i think that's why it works and people don't think it's a christmas movie but it is the other thing is name drop i did work with john hughes 
did a movie called Newport South. His son wrote, and John Sr. was on the set, and that was a thrill for me. The other one, two words over and over. I think it's one word. Homecoming, 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 the homecoming, the Walton's TV pilot Christmas oh, yeah. thing. Best ever. So go for it, uh, Jensen. Happy uh, holidays to you and yours. See ya. Rus- Rusty, Keenan's too young to, to know what the homecoming is. Yeah. Oh, you gotta you got to watch it, Keenan. Um, you're going to flip him. Really? It's it, it's about the guy. It's about the father. It's a big snowstorm. Right. The father is off on some uh, trip, and it's it's unclear whether he's going to make it home for Christmas uh, exactly. alive, and they're all waiting uh, on the edge of their seats for him. Is that right? Yes, it is. And, I mean, Keenan, you have, obviously, Richard Thomas. All the kids are the same kids that went on into the TV series. But Patricia Neal plays the mother. You talk about somebody who walked the boards, you know, with – uh, this is the real. This is the real thing, man. Shot on film, and it's just unbelievable. Cleavon Little, uh, unbelievable. All these Broadway people that, are, that Ellen Cor- Corby is in it. So anyway, you got to see that game. All right, we'll see you guys. Hey, happy holidays, Rusty. Okay, Rusty Deweese, uh, the homecoming. It's I remember it when I was a kid. Okay, I'll check it out. Remember the famous Walton's TV show. Or are you too young no, for that, too? No, I don't. Audience, he's too young for the Walton. That's, that's just shocking. Um, probably one of the more successful TV shows of all time. Um, Little House on the Prairie. Okay, yeah. The Waltons was sort of Little House on the Prairie. Okay, yeah. And it, there was a TV pilot that, that oh, yeah, edge, edge of your seat, whether this guy is going to make it home. Big snowstorm. They live out in the out way out in the in the country and yeah, it's a tearjerker. Okay, let's watch it. Okay, uh, let's go back to your generation. I gotta ask you about something called Klaus, with which I am unfamiliar. So tell it to us. Well, I you know I was thinking you know all of these Christmas classics are have been made in the past, you know, and we haven't uh, had enough Christmas classics that have been made in the present. And so the, the, the best new Christmas movie that I've seen is an animated film uh, on Netflix called Klaus. And it's a very clever and beautiful uh, movie about the origin of Christmas. And it comes up with a new origin for Christmas. Um, and it, it takes place in a Scandinavian town where a, uh, hustling uh, postmaster starts teaching kids how to write letters uh, to Santa Claus, uh, which he kind of invents with a woodsman who likes making toys. And it's very clever. It's very beautiful. And it will make you cry about five times. Um, And it's right there on Netflix and it's new. And I think that's the fun thing, you know, finding these new classics, that you haven't seen before, so you don't have to watch the same movie for the 500th time every single year. Uh, okay, I've got to go to Bob and Randolph. Bob, uh, be quick. What do you, what are you what are you watching? Uh, Harvey. 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 Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, we'll add it to the list. Um, thank you, Bob, for calling in. And I think, uh, Danny, I think we got Mary in Randolph as well. Mary, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Uh, Merry Christmas. Um, yeah, so my one of my all-time favorites, wrapping wrapping movie, 
uh, wrapping presents movie is White Christmas. And if you haven't seen White Christmas with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye, you won't get the line in Christmas Vacation when Chevy says, Chevy Chase says, we're going to have the best, happy, happy, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby danced with Danny freaking Kay. And <laughs> I mean, I just love that line and I love those two movies. It's interesting. Okay, Mary, thank you for the call and happy holidays. I, I'm I'm not a Bing Crosby kind of guy since I read like a, a long newspaper article about what a mean father he was to his kids. So I'm kind of down on White Christmas, but the Esquire list puts it at number uh, three as the best one, best Christmas. It's movie. a great film. It's a great okay. film, and they end up in Vermont, don't they? Yeah, sort of fake Vermont. I I, I can't remember. <laughs> Whether they filmed it here or not, I think they did actually. So, okay. Uh, what are we missing? We've got uh, two minutes left. Well, we, we did want to mention a personal favorite of ours, which is uh, there's two West Wing episodes. Yeah. Uh, my dad's favorite show um, that are centered around Christmas. Uh, in the first and second season, if you haven't seen the first and second season, I highly suggest you to you do. And there are two Christmas episodes in both of those seasons. The first one is called In Excelsius Deo, um, where Toby gets a homeless man um, a a a uh, official burial. And the second is where Dosh deals with a past trauma. And that's all I'll say. I don't think we have enough time to go any deeper than that, but... They're just they're two of the best episodes you're likely to see. If you like if you like a good TV show, I would suggest West Wing and those Christmas episodes are especially good. And let's end with uh, what Lee Cattell and I started out the show with, which is Charlie Brown's Christmas. Uh, I read a great review of it uh, in The New York Times this week by uh, I can't pronounce his last name. I think it's James Pozawak. And I got permission from him to talk about it on the show. I emailed him. And he is a Jewish guy who loves Charlie Brown's Christmas because it's all about Charlie Brown being cast out and from the, from the cool crowd and, uh, and talking about and struggling with the meaning of Christmas. Uh, and then, of course, as Lee told me, there's the memorable speech by Linus holding his blanket while he speaks from the stage from the school play about the meaning of Christmas and uh, uh, Jew or Gentile, it's uh, I think it's something that we all can gather around uh, this holiday season. So uh, Keenan Ellis, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, that is our show uh, for today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to our guests, Keenan Ellis, Ann Miller, Ann Wallace, Allen, and Bob Nay. By the way, you can check out each of these people online. Just Google any of them and check out their great content. I hate using that word. Keenan Ellis has a great podcast called The Phone Booth, which you would love these holidays. Uh, Ann Miller is still doing great things at Project N95. Uh, remember, you can stream this show live or listen later as a podcast on WDEVradio.com. As always, we'll talk politics, media, and culture, and everything else on my mind and yours. You can find me at KevinKLS.com, where, where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. 
or my podcast called Conflict of Interest. Our show is produced by me, engineered, by, made possible by Danny McGivrick and Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, Brent Curtis, and all the other folks at WDEV. Thanks to everybody at, at uh, KWMR, Community Radio and Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for joining us. And uh, by the way, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah to everybody out there. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next week on Vermont Viewpoint. Live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV.